Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17 is where we're at this morning as we continue to plow forward in this series we're calling Seven, taking a look at what Jesus has to say to the church. And this morning we find ourselves reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, and considering what Jesus had to say to the church at Pergamum. So would you join me? If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, it'll be on the screen for you. You can follow along there. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I don't know about you, but I think I've been married long enough to understand that without compromise in the context of relationships, uh, things get really hard very quick, right? It's one of the things I learned early on, and sometimes uh, I forget that lesson every once in a while. I have to come back and be reminded of it, uh, but compromise in the context of relationships is a powerful and productive thing, isn't it? Uh, we have to compromise in the context of marital relationships, husbands and wives. Oftentimes we have to compromise in the context of even parental relationships, right? As we talk to our kids and help them understand that sometimes we're willing to meet them in the middle as they come toward the middle with us. Sometimes we compromise in the context of friendships, right? We compromise about where we want to go to eat or where we want to go on vacation or where it is that we want our kids to go to school or where it is that uh, we want to buy or build a home or the car that we want to by. We compromise and we meet in the middle about a lot of things relationally. And while compromise is productive and at times very powerful in the context of a relationship, I want you to know something this morning, church. It is poisonous theologically. Relationally, it's powerful, but it's poisonous theologically. And that's what the church, Jesus has to say to the church at Pergamum. What, what he says to the church at Pergamum is this. He says, truth matters. What you believe about God, it matters. What you teach about God, it matters. What you say about God, it matters. What you sing about God, it matters. And while in in the context of all kinds of relationships, compromise helps you meet in the middle in the context of what you believe and what you confess and what you affirm about God, it is destructive. And it will poison not only you as an individual, but a church as well. See, a couple of weeks ago, we said that, you know, Jesus, when he starts speaking to the churches, he identifies what a true church, what a faithful church looks like. And he says, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that a faithful church might be a church that has lots of doctrinal precision, but without relational passion, it's just a dead and cold church. Right? Because Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, if you don't repent, if you don't turn, if you don't rekindle your love and affection for me and rekindle your love and affection for people, I will come and remove your lampstand because Jesus says there is no light without love. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. Right? That, That they had doctrinal precision but no relational passion. But it seems that the church at Pergamum had perhaps the opposite issue going on in her context. 
There was still passion for God and maybe even still passion for people, but she had lost her grip on her precision of doctrine, on theological truths that were foundational to who the church was and how the church was to live. And so what Jesus has to say to the church is this, that the truth matters. See, the church at Pergamum, let me give you a little background, the situation going on here at the time. If Ephesus was the New York or the L.A. of Asia Minor, right? It was the cultural hub. It's the place from which culture was, in which culture was formed and from which culture flew or, 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 or flowed to the rest of the surrounding regions. If, that's, if that was Ephesus in Asia Minor, then Pergamum was the D.C. of Asia Minor. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Right? It was where the, the government was conducted for that particular region as the extension of Roman authority, as the extension of Roman power. That was Pergamum. Pergamum also was an educated city. It had a library with nearly 200,000 volumes that occupied it. Now, think about the days before the printing press when everything was hand-scribed and written. That was a massive undertaking. 200,000 volumes. It was second only in the ancient world to the great library at Alexandria in Egypt, right? It was second to Alexandria. Uh, one ancient historian, Pliny, called it the, by far the most distinguished city in Asia Minor. It had temples dedicated to all kinds of gods and goddesses, Dionysus, Athena, Asclepius, who was the god of healing. It was symbolized by a serpent wrapped around a staff, which is still used in the medical community today. And his temple was there. Many people came there seeking healing, seeking essentially salvation from the diseases that ailed them. There was a great altar to Zeus that also exists in, in Pergamum, one of the ancient wonders of, of, of the world in that day. It was, a steep, it was a city steeped in pagan religion, but listen, it was also a city that was in the back pocket of the Roman Empire. Right? It, was a, it was steeped in pagan religions, but it was also tight with Rome. Pergamon was the official center for worship of the emperor and the, in the state. Listen, while all these other cities did have temples to emperors, Pergamon was the hub of emperor worship in their day and time. It was the first city in 29 BC to build a temple dedicated to a living Roman emperor. Not one who had died and was being commemorated, but one who was alive and being worshipped as God. Right, so Pergamon was the center of the imperial cult in her day. And so the church in Pergamon faced this stiff and zealous opposition from the outside. And Jesus commends them for their holding fast to him in the face of all this hostility. Look in verse 13. Jesus says that he knows where they live. He says it's in a city where Satan's throne is located. Now, scholars have a field day with that. There's all kinds of suggestions about what that means. Here's what I think it means, where I landed after I read all these different suggestions, right? I think it's a reference to the Roman emperor and the imperial cult. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says Satan's throne. Because what he intends us to see is this, that behind the political persecution is satanic opposition to God's people and God's kingdom, God is, God is, kingdom is advancing, his churches are being planted, they're thriving, people are coming to faith in Jesus, and there is satanic opposition in the form of political persecution that is centered in Pergamum for that district, for that region, for that area. He says that is where the center and seat of authority is for Rome. 
And I think this is the case because, listen, the major difficulty in the Revelation as a whole, in this entire book, is the issue of the Roman Empire. And at the core of that was the love of the state. See, Pergamum was obsessed with the love of the state. Patriotism and Pergamum had crossed the line to nationalism, and there's a difference. There's a difference. It had become idolatry for them. As a result, if you were expected to just kind of get in line and line up enthusiastically to worship the emperor and come by the altar and sprinkle some incense and confess Caesar as Lord. And so that was expected and to be a good citizen of Rome. And those who failed to do this were labeled as dangerous and they were opposed. Only Caesar is Lord in the Roman mind, not this so-called Christ. And for the Christians at Pergamum, listen, they could worship Jesus and they could follow Jesus and they could obey Jesus and they could walk with Jesus if they wanted to so long as it didn't interfere with their responsibilities as a good citizen of the Roman Empire, right? And so if their convictions got in the way of their public duty, they were to set their convictions aside for the sake of, for the sake of being a good citizen of their, 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 their empire. See, the, the perspective in Pergamon was this, is that privatized faith, that's fine. Right? You can practice it in your homes, you can practice it in your church, but don't bring it into the public square where it would actually begin to affect your life and the way that you interface with the rest of the world. That's what was going on at Pergamum. And in this context, Jesus says two things to them. He says, first of all, you held fast to my name. A name in the ancient world was representative of your identity, who you were. And Jesus says, you did not, you did not set aside my identity as the only Lord and God, but you held fast to it, even in the face of all this external hostility that was circulating around you. You continue to fess, m confess me as Lord and God alone. And then second of all, he says, you held fast to my faith. Jesus says, you didn't stop trusting me. You didn't stop following me. You didn't stop uh, believing. Right? You, didn't, you didn't jettison your faith on account of this external opposition. That's what he says to them. He, confer he, he commends them for those two things. He says, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas was a martyr, so for one of the first places we see this term witness show up that's referring to somebody who witnessed unto their death to the person and power of Jesus Christ. Antipas was brought before the Roman proconsul and he was demanded that he worship Caesar as Lord. He said, if, you, if you will just sprinkle a little incense on the altar, Antipas, and if you will just say Caesar is Lord, you don't even have to mean it, but you can just say it. And then you can walk free. And yet he refuses. He refuses to bend the knee. And so they take him, and one church tradition says they took him and they put him into a brass bull and they lit that black, a fire underneath it and he was roasted alive like in an oven. And Jesus says, even in that day, you held fast to me. Well done. Well done. Jesus says, in the face of external hostility and pressure and opposition from the outside, you continue to hold fast. But Jesus says, where your vulnerability lies as a church is not on the outside but on the inside. That's what he says to the church at Pergamon. That your vulnerability is on the inside. Because they had begun, they had begun to receive and welcome and tolerate false teachers in the life of the church. And what Jesus has to say to the church at Pergamon is something that I think every 21st century church would do well to hear today is this. 
says you have to change your mind about compromised Christianity. You have to change your mind about compromised Christianity. See, we live in a, they live in a day and age, and we live in a day and age in which, right, there are certain things about Christianity that are appealing to the outside world, and it's fine to embrace those things. They help you raise your kids, right? They help you find some grounding in times of tragedy, as we prayed earlier. But then there are other things that want to push people away, right? The exclusive claims of Jesus, they push people away. And there, there are many in our day who want to say, well, we, can we take the best of what Christianity offers to the world and just kind of not talk about or, we may not outwardly deny these things, we don't, don't talk about them very often, right? And we can grow really big churches that way. But Jesus said, you've got to change your mind about compromised Christianity. You've got to turn, he says, from your tolerance of false teaching, Jesus says, in spite of the fact that they were holding fast in the midst of hostility, he says their threat was inward because they were not in vigilant. As vigilant as they were about outward threats, they were not as that vigilant about inward threats. See, look what Jesus says in, in the text. He says that there are some among them who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we said a couple of weeks ago that the Nicolaitans were a, a, a cult that had risen out of Christianity that was emphasizing two things, idolatry and immorality. Right, the worship of other gods and an and, 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 and a, and a off-the-rails kind of moral ethic. So idolatry and immorality, that's really all we know about them. But Jesus likens them, he says, to the scheme of Balaam in the book of Numbers. Remember Balaam? Balaam's this Moabite this prophet in the, in the Old Testament that the Moabite king Balak hired because as the people of Israel moved from the land of Egypt into the promised land through the wilderness, right, Mo, the king of Moab, Balak, wanted the prophet Balaam to curse God's people, pronounce a curse on them. So he goes and hires Balaam, right, says, I'm going to pay you if you will curse them. So Balaam goes to curse them in three separate occasions. Balaam tries to curse, and as he opens his mouth, God fills it with blessings on the people of Israel. Right, and so Balaam can't curse God's people, right? And, and Balak continues to get frustrated, and he gets frustrated over and over again. And so what we learn here is that Balaam finally resulted because he wanted the, what he wanted was, the, was the, the profit from that, right? He wanted the money from it. So he says, listen, if I can't curse them, you can deceive them. You can deceive them, right? If you just doll up your, 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 your daughters, right, and send them on to the temple for the temple prostitutes, and then you were to entice the people of Israel, the men of Israel, to come and worship your gods, to show them the benefit of worshiping your gods, that they would provide fertility for the land, they would provide, right, fertility for your wombs, it would provide supp supply and provision for you, you would store up crops, like just come and worship their gods in their ways. He says, if you can't, if I can't curse them, you can deceive them. And that's exactly what takes place in Numbers 25. We find that the, the, the men of Israel end up going to these shrines and these temples and engaging with temple prostitutes and worshiping the gods of these, the, the Moabites and eating the food that had been sacrificed to them and participating in idol worship. And Jesus says, so also there are some among you who hold to this teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is prompting you to do the same thing. And in the same way that the teaching of Balaam was a stumbling block to Israel, this will be a stumbling block to you, church. It'll be a stumbling block to you. This customized, compromised Christianity will become a stumbling block in your life. And Jesus says in verse 16, right, the response to that is two words. Therefore, repent. You know what the word repent means? It means literally this, change your mind. 
That's what it's the first thing that it means. Change your mind, the way you're viewing things. And so change your mind about this, this compromised Christianity. Uh, listen, uh, b- before we look at any more in the text, I want to give you three reasons why in our day and time it would behoove us, it would behoove us to, embra- to, to, to embrace this command that Jesus gives. And the first one is this. Listen, false teaching, false teaching is insulting to God. Do you know that? It's insulting to God. It's insulting to God to say things about God and sing things about God and savor things about God that are not true. Listen, I've been, I've been married for almost 18 years, right? Or almost 17 years. I, I, I have to do the math a little bit quicker in my head. Almost 17. <laughs> my wife's shaking her head up here. Almost 17 years, right? May 19th. 2001, stood before all my friends and family at the time there in First Baptist Church of Pineville, Louisiana, and we exchanged vows, right? And we said, to death do us part. And there may have been a few times where she wanted to kill me, but she didn't, and we're still going, right? And so, the, to death do us part, and so we exchanged vows. And so, oh, what I learned about my life very quickly is that in the context of this marital relationship is that there were certain things that I needed to do to continue to com- express my love toward her, and one of those things were cards, any other guys got wives like that? Man, they just love cards, especially sappy cards, sentimental cards, right? But so, so I would go to the store and I'd buy the most sentimental sappy card I could find, right? And I would, and I, first time I gave it to her, it's almost like she gave it back to me. She's like, mm-mm. <laughs> because all I did was sign my name. And you know better than that now, right? You've got to write something in that card, right? You've got to say something personalized, not just what those writers at Hallmark said, right? You've got to personalize it. And so I started to personalize it. I write things about her character, about our relationship that I've appreciated, ways that I've grown, the kind of man that she's made me into as God's used her in my life, all those kinds of things. But listen, our, uh, so, so yes, our 17th anniversary is coming up here in a few short months. And when I go out to the store and buy a card, if I bring it home and I'm sitting there contemplating the things I'm going to write to my wife in this card, and so I begin to, begin to, begin to, you know, the pen begins to flow, those creative juices begin to just overflow onto the page, and I begin to say things like, baby, I, I am captivated by your deep crystal blue eyes like the ocean, and your blonde flowing hair, right? And your porcelain complexion, right? And I write all this out and I put it in the card and seal it up. And I'm like, dude, I just knocked it out of the park. And I give it the card to her. And she opens the card and she begins to read. You can just see the anger burning on her face. Why? Because she doesn't have blue eyes. She has hazel eyes. She doesn't have blonde hair. She has brown hair. She's a brunette, right? She doesn't have porcelain skin. She has an olive complexion. Right? And so she tans really easily, which makes me so sick in the summer. Because I just burn. Right? That's who she is. And so to, for her to open that card talking about blue eyes and blonde hair and porcelain skin, that is insulting to her. That is not honoring to her. I could say things about her and savor things about her that are not true, and they don't make her feel honored. They make her feel insulted. And the same is true about God same is true about God. See, just because we, 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 we sing things about Him, or we say things about Him, or we say th- savor things about Him that are not true, they don't, that those things don't honor Him, they insult Him. He is grieved by them. He is not glorified by them. See, false teaching is insulting. Second of all, false teaching is idolatrous. 
Look at the connection in verses 14 and 15. There's a connection between those who are participating in idol worship and receiving the teaching of false teachers. Right? Because if I have a customized Christianity where I see, say, and savor things about God that are not true, then it is not the true God that I am worshiping, but a customized figment of my imagination that I've constructed for myself. And so I'm worshiping a God, but just not the, the true God. Because false teaching is always connected to the worship of false gods. It's always idolatrous. And it's always destructive in our lives. Listen, a little context here. In their day and time, in those ancient cities, there were customarily what were called trade guilds. You know what a trade guild is? It's like an like a, a association of people who got together who shared the same vocation. Right? And so they worked the same jobs. They were bakers and cooks and candlestick makers, right? So they taught. Maybe they were teachers or they were cobblers. They made shoes or sandals. Maybe they made clothes. Whatever it was, whatever their job was, they were blacksmiths, right? And so they got together in a little guild and they associated with people who were in their vocation. And one of the ways to rise up in your vocation was to be a part of these guilds. Now these guilds also had patron deities that were connected to them. These gods that would bless their work and bless their endeavors and bless the labor of their hands. And so these guilds would get together and they would meet, but they would also worship and they would sacrifice food to idols, these patron gods. And then they would have what the text says, right? Sexual encounters in those guilds. That's how they would worship. And, and, and Jesus says there are some among you who are embracing false teaching and it's leading you to this worship of a false God. Right? Because you're banking more of your identity and more of your satisfaction and your security. You're looking f- for that from these patron deities rather than from me. Because f- this false teaching is always connected to false gods. Third, not only is it insulting and not only is it idolatrous, but it's also, it's also false teaching exploits our personal desires and cultural values. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Listen, distortions of truth are born from and they prey on our desires. Oftentimes what they do is they end up feeding our vices instead of fueling virtues in our lives. Right? For instance... Some of you are familiar with the prosperity gospel, right? That God wants you, his desire for your life is to be healthy and wealthy, right? That is his will for you, right? That you would be prosperous, everything's moving up and to the right, everything is succeeding, everything is always flourishing, everything's always more and better and bigger and stronger, Every, that's, that's the trajectory of your life and that's God's will for his, all of his people in all places and at all times. And if you're not experiencing that, then it's probably because you don't have enough faith. Right, the, here's what the prosperity gospel does. Right? It taps into a desire that we all have called covetousness that we're born with, that we would covet more, we would covet bigger, we would covet better, we would covet stronger, we would covet up into the rightness all the time in our lives. And it taps into that desire and it fuels it. It doesn't counteract our covetousness and create the virtue of contentment. Rather, what it does is it fuels our covetousness more and more and more. 
Because why wouldn't I, if I am naturally covetous by by nature, embrace a teaching that says, you can have it all. And you can have it all now. See, it, 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 it exploits those desires of our heart. Uh, I, I, some of you know I listen to a little Christian hip-hop every once in a while, and there's a Christian hip-hop artist named Lecrae. And in one of his songs called Change, he talks about all the things that somebody tries to do in order to experience change in their life, lasting, real change. And here, here, here's what he says in part of that song. He says, now you got your Oprah on, thinking maybe she can help you out your hopeless zone. Listen, I, I can't say it like he says it, and so you just have to bear with <laughs> me as I try to read this lyric. She's going to change you. You even tried the church. The pastor gave you a bunch of rules, but they ain't seem to work. You don't change. It's like legalism. You tried another one, though, that's got you feeling good inside and got you running for mo and mo, right? <laughs> that would be more and more for those of you who are not up on urban vocabulary. But it's all about you, not God, not truth. Just because you wear the suit doesn't mean you've been changed. Is Christ just a means to money plus health? You're the master? He's the dummy? And then emphatically he says, no. See, it taps into that covetousness that we all are naturally born with and it fuels it and it feeds it. But it also exploits cultural values. Let me give you an illustration of this. See, a denial, there's many in our day who would want to deny the presence of any kind of absolute truth. There are no absolutes. There are no standards, right? What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Everything is relative, right? And so that's, they, it, it, and that, what that does is it exploits uh, the cultural value within our nation of wanting to avoid offending anyone by tolerating every perspective. You know what, in earlier generations, here's what tolerance was. In earlier generations, we were tolerant and embraced every person. That's what tolerance looked like in previous generations. Where we would not be, we we didn't want to be exclusive, right? We wanted to, to embrace people. But here's what tolerance looks like in this day and this time. Is that we are told that we are bigots and that we are backwater and that we are culturally uh, insensitive, not, not if we tolerate people, that's not enough. But what we're admonished to do is tolerate not every person, but every, every perspective. That every perspective is equally valid. Every perspective is equally true. Every perspective is on par with every other. And yet, if there is a God who has formed all things and created everything by the word of his mouth, and brought us into existence, then he is the one who gets to define what truth is, not me, not my perspective, his perspective. There is an absolute standard. And there are those who would want to adopt this particular cultural value and say, you know what? We can take a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of this cultural value, we can wed them together, and then they're not quite as abrasive within our culture. And Jesus says, no. You've got to change your mind about a compromised Christianity. So here's a question, church. How do you know if you fall in prey to this kind of compromised Christianity? Let me give you a benchmark, and here it is, is that you consistently conform your doctrine to your desires. 
you consistently conform your doctrine to your desires. Listen, in other words, what's sovereign in your life is not God, but your feelings. See, there is no sovereign God who rules and reigns over all things to whom you bend your knee, but what you bend your knee to most frequently and most oftenly and most willingly is your desires or your feelings. That's one of the ways to know that you're worshiping a false God. That's one of the ways to know that you have fallen prey to false teaching. Is that you're shaping God into your image as opposed to being shaped into His image. C.S. Lewis said this brilliantly, I think, years ago when he said the, the, the chief problem for the wise people of ages past was this. Listen to what he says. He says the problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. In other words, how do I conform my inward desires? How do I conform my feelings? How do I conform those longings to the objective reality that I see around me? And he says the solution was wisdom, skillful living. It was virtue. It was desire, the cultivation of those things in your life. He says the problem today The problem that most of us want to solve today is not how to conform my desires to the external objective reality around me, but how do I conform reality outside of me to my desires? He says that's what we're trying to do so often. It's not how do I grow in godliness internally by being conformed to the image of Christ, but how do I shape my life and my reality and even my God into my image? if you find that you're consistently bending and flexing doctrine to conform to your desires, you have fallen prey to false teaching that is insulting to God, that is idolatrous in the worship of a false God, and that has just hijacked some desire that you've had in your soul and has inflamed it. And so what we have eventually is what we might call Stepford Gods. Have you ever seen the movie Stepford Wives? It was released a couple decades ago. It's a story of this Connecticut town where the men got together because they were tired of their wives constantly contradicting them, right? And they were tired of working in their marriage and they were tired of rubbing up against the relational pitfalls in their relationships. And so what they did, they got together and they killed their wives and they replaced them with robots, right? So you have these robots that were formed in the image of their, 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 their wives and they, they looked exactly how their husbands wanted them to look. They talked exactly how their husbands wanted them to talk. They in, in, interacted with their husbands like everything was always compliant. They were always acquiescing to their husband's wishes, always just meeting his desires, fulfilling his longings, right? They could go anywhere they wanted. They could do anything they wanted. There were no questions asked. They never had any accountability. There was never anything never anything in the relationship that rubbed them, right? But is that a real relationship? It's not, is it? It's not. And listen, in the same way, that's not a real relationship in the context of marriage. It's not a real relationship in the context of our covenant union with Christ. See, if you're God... And the truth about who he is is never cutting against the grain of your life in some, some places. There's never pressing on areas of your life that you don't want to relinquish control over. Then chances are what you've done is you've erected a God in your own image. You have a step for God. And that is prime evidence that you may have fallen prey to false teaching. And so what do we do about it? 
Listen, based on what Jesus says here, what I want to say to you is this, is you've got to learn, we've got to learn to strengthen our grip on true doctrine. We've got to learn to strengthen our grip on it. Right? A couple of uh, months back, we uh, went away on a staff and elders retreat and one of the things we were praying through and thinking through together are some of the th- truths that are, we felt like the congregation that God had entrusted to us needed to be placed at the center of their lives for them to understand how to live in obedience to Christ, how to follow Him. Right, things that, think, doctrinal truths that, that needed to be that planted in the lives of people that we knew. And you know one of the f- first things that made the list, that got the top votes among all of our elders and staff was this, was the doctrine of the Trinity. Understanding of God's nature of who he was in Father and Son and Spirit, how that affected our salvation, how that helped us understand the way that God had saved us and the Father predestining and adopting, the Son redeeming, the Spirit sealing our salvation, what all that means and entails and helping to inflame in our hearts a love for God because of who he is and how he has acted. It's implications in the context of marriage. It's implications in the context of other relationships in our lives. We felt like that was one of the primary things that we needed to give attention to. And so as we ramped up toward this first round of renewed classes that are starting in a couple of weeks, one of the things that we thought was, hey, let's offer an option for people to come and deepen and strengthen their grip on this doctrine of the nature of God, of who He is as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we have a course that will be called In Living in Light of the Trinity. It'll be four weeks long starting on February 28th on Wednesday evenings up here. There'll be child care for those renewed classes. And listen, if you haven't signed up for one yet, let me encourage you. Utilize this opportunity to strengthen your grip on true doctrine. Because you know, listen, the, the, way, that you can, the way that you learn to distinguish false teaching from true teaching is this. It's not by going out and learning every error that there is. That's not how you do it but by constant exposure to that which is true. You know, whenever they train FBI agents to recognize counterfeit currency, you know how they do it? They don't bring every single possible counterfeit bill in front of them and say, this is what this one looks like, this is what this one looks like, this is what this one looks like, and this is what this one looks like. You know what they do? They give them the genuine U.S. minted currency to handle, look at, feel, over and over, day after day after day after day after day after day, so that whenever they put their hands on something that is false, it immediately becomes recognizable to them. Because they're so acquainted with the real genuine article. And listen, if we would, we need to begin to strengthen our grip on true doctrine so that we're able to recognize and go, that, that doesn't sound right. It doesn't square up. And listen, one of the ways that you can do that is through these renewed courses. And this would be a great opportunity if you're like, man, I've just always kind of heard about the Trinity and it's always been kind of like an egg to me, right? There's a yolk and a shell and a white and that kind of, that's about all, that's about as far as I got. Like this is a great opportunity to deepen and strengthen your grip on that doctrine. I want to encourage you to avail yourself of that opportunity. There are are other doctrines that will roll out through those renewed courses to help you strengthen your grip on. But we don't, I don't want to just stand up here and say to you, that's what you need to do. I want to provide you the tools to do it and I feel like we're taking those steps to do so.
Now, let me close with this. All right, why, why, why should we strengthen our grip on doctrine? Why should we be concerned about this false teaching? Yes, yes it's idolatrous. I get it. Yes, yes, it is. It just hijacks my desires and inflames them. It doesn't actually c- contradict them. And yes, I understand that it's insulting to God. If that's not enough for you, let me flip the switch a little bit here and talk about the positive things this will do in your life. Because Jesus makes a promise. He makes a bold warning. He says, listen, if you don't repent, here's what's going to happen. The one who has the two-edged sword, he's going to come and judge. You don't want the sword of Jesus to fall on you. The sword of the Romans might have fallen on them, right? It might have fallen on them and it might have killed some of them. But Jesus says, ultimately, my verdict is one that's true and right. You don't want my sword to fall on you. But he also not only gives a warning, but he gives a promise. And this is what Jesus promises. He says, if you would strengthen your grip on doctrine, if you would hold fast to the teachings of who I am, to the instruction that you've received, to the faith that has been once for all delivered unto the saints, here's what it will do. You will be free and you will be full. You will be free and you will be full. Look in verse 17. Look at what Jesus has to say. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, some of you just got like, I didn't see anybody jumping like out of their seat, excited about hidden manna and white stones. Right? Let's try and get to the heart of what Jesus is saying. Listen, what Jesus is saying is this. First of all, you will be free. You know, one of the things that keeps us in bondage, one of the things that keeps us in bondage is not knowing who we are and we're constantly trying to discover our identity. We're constantly trying to make a name for ourselves. We might do it through the people that we surround ourselves with, the network that we run with. We might do it through the possessions that we acquire. We might do it through the homes that we buy. We might do it through our ascending rise and our, 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 our respective vocations. We might do it through our achievements and accomplishments, our corporate awards. All We're trying to make a name for ourselves. And Jesus says, for the one who would hold fast to me and the one who would strengthen their grip on doctrine, what you will find is that you will become a freer and freer and freer person because you will gain an deeper and deeper and deeper understanding of who you are. Who you are in me. And that will free you from all of your endless pursuit of trying to make a name for yourself because Jesus says, I will give you one. You know, the white stone that Jesus references there is probably an admittance ticket to the Roman games or to one of these trade guilds. Once again, the scholars go ballistic on that and they have all different types of interpretations. But I think the one that's probably most fitting to the context is this. There's an admittance ticket to these trade guilds parties or to the athletic competitions and Jesus is saying listen you don't need the patron deities of your trade guild to define who you are you don't need to go and sacrifice yourself on the altar of your vocation in order to find your identity he says but I will give you one if you would look to me and hold fast to me I will give you an identity that is unshakable that no one can rip away from you. Regardless of who fires you, when you get laid off, 
what, how, whether business turns down, whether your church implodes, you will have an identity that is unshakable because it will be grounded in what I've done for you, not what the name that you've made for yourself. And it will grant you in admittance into this feast that is coming one day. And you will be freer and freer and freer in this life the more you understand what's waiting for you in the next. Don't you want that? I know I do. But the second thing Jesus says, not only will you be free, but you'll be full. Jesus says, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. See, back in Exodus chapter 16, whenever Israel's wandering through the, wild, through, through the desert, God provides for them, right? The water from the rock as Moses strikes it and the manna from heaven that falls down. And in Exodus chapter 16, we're also told that Moses gave instructions to Aaron to take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. Eventually, it would be placed in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder to all of God's people in all places and all times that it is God who fills you, it is God who provides for you, it is God who satisfies you. And then when Jesus shows up in John chapter um, 6, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I will fill you. You've been looking to be filled in all these other places. And Jesus says, I will fill you. You will be set, you will eat until you've had your fill and you will be satisfied. And Jesus says, that's coming to the one who conquers, the one who holds firm to truth and who changes their mind about compromised Christianity. Now listen, I don't talk to an individual in our day and time that does not want to be free and does not want to be full. In fact, in all of your relationships, students, in all of your relationships that you are trying to press into, what you're looking for is freedom and fullness. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for an identity. Right? Adults, in all of, some of you, like I know people who have hopped from job to job to job to job, but you know people like that? They just keep moving constantly because they're trying to make a name and they're trying to find out who, who they are. Listen, there, there is a freedom and there is a fullness that is unparalleled in this life. And Jesus says, I will give it to you. I will give it to you. And listen, church, this morning as we come to the table to receive the elements together, the bread and the cup, I want you to know that what, you are, what we are about to partake of now is, is, a, 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 sh- a glimmer of that fullness that we will enjoy and that feast that we will enjoy one day. Jesus says, hold fast and I will free you and fill you. And that's my hope for us as a church is that we would be a place that not only burns with passion for God, that returns to our first love, that remembers and repents and returns, but we'd also be a church that is precise and that strengthens our grip on doctrine, not to be led astray by false teachers and begin to worship a God created in our image rather than being conformed to the image of the God who created us.
Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that your word does not leave us ignorant. But God, you provide such clarity to us. And that clarity at times convicts and it cuts like a two-edged sword. And it divides us. It gets down to the very, very core of who we are. And Father, I know that there are folks in this room who, uh, just based on the number of people here, who have been building their identity on how other people view them. And so they've given themselves over to the worship of other gods. And they may look at, look at this and say that they have never sacrificed food to idols or, or engaged in some kind of temple prostitution, but they have been sacrificing themselves on the altar of other people's opinions. And they've been sacrificing themselves on the altar of the perceptions in our culture. They want to appear enlightened. They don't want to appear backwards or bigoted. So God, would you free them with an identity that is secure and stable in your son? And there are those who have been looking to fill themselves with all kinds of experiences. Father, would you fill them by feasting on the Lord Jesus? As they strengthen their grip on true doctrine and discover more, not about themselves, but about you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.